0: from KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Shuck. This is a program that examines religion from a critical perspective. You will find theists and atheists, believers and skeptics, authors and activists, thinkers and doers. Every Sunday morning at 11 Pacific time, a new podcast is uploaded so you can go to church without having to go to church. This is stuff you won't hear in most churches. It is a critical examination of religion. I'm thrilled when people tell me that they use the podcasts for study groups and as a place to go to learn about new books and new thinkers. You'll want to subscribe to Religion for Life, so a new program will come to your phone or other device each week, share with friends, find Religion for Life on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podomatic, and wherever else. You can find podcasts. You'll find Religion for Life. Religion for Life is free to radio stations. It's a weekly 29-minute show that will interest and perhaps disturb your radio audience. But they will listen and talk about it. Thanks to WETS Johnson City, Tennessee and WEHC Emory, Virginia for believing in and carrying a program that critically examines religion. Religion is too important to be ignored and too controversial and volatile to be left to the zealots. Today, God is on the table for dissection. My guest is Jeffrey Robbins, the chair of the Religion and Philosophy Department at Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. Dr. Robbins has authored or edited eight books, including the forthcoming Radical Theology, A Theological Method for Change. He'll be in the Portland area at Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, November 6th and 7th, he, along with Thomas Sheehan, professor of religion at Stanford University, will make a weekend presentation entitled God, Christianity, and the Human Future. The big questions are these. Does God have any value? What do we mean by God today? When a personal being who created and interferes in the universe has faded into mythology, is there a way to think of God that makes sense and even perhaps inspires. To tackle the big questions is my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Robbins, via Skype from Anvil, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Robbins, to Religion for Life.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: All right. Um, you are going to be here with Thomas Sheehan uh, in Beaverton, Oregon at Southminster Presbyterian Church, November 6th and 7th, as part of the West Star Institute Jesus Seminar. Tell us a little bit about uh, this new seminar, uh, God and the Human Future.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. The um, The seminar was established a little bit over a year ago, um, and it had been talked about at Westar for, I think, a number of years uh, as a way to get scholars who weren't necessarily historians or archaeologists or textual critics involved in the work that they were doing. I, I'm sure your listeners uh are somewhat familiar with the work of the Jesus Seminar, but Westar more generally is really committed to uh, increasing religious literacy for the public, um, to promote cutting-edge scholarship um, in a way that uh, communicates the importance and significance of scholarly work to the broader public. So. For the past, you know, two decades, the work on the historical Jesus, I think has, it's fair to say, has, has revolutionized the way in which uh, scholars have thought about who Jesus was and some of the biblical texts. Um, but they've been kind of gun shy to really approach the topic of God, uh, largely because the kind of methodology employed by the Jesus Seminar, you can't really do when it comes to God. Jesus Seminar famously used the beads to try to to figure out whether Jesus actually might have said something or performed a particular act um, using the best kind of historical um, method they could possibly bring to bear on the subject but when it comes to God how do you what it? the difficulty for us on the seminar is to try to figure out what it is that we're trying to figure out when it comes to God how does scholarship promote uh, a clear understanding of the concept of God and, and what God means for us today in contemporary culture.
0: So part of what you're doing is kind of a history of the concept of God. That's kind of one way to tackle it, right? I mean, there is certainly yeah. a history of God, so to speak, a history of the concept of God.
1: Yeah, I think that that's certainly true. And in and, and a deliberate effort to try to keep the connection with the Jesus Seminar and the, the Christian Origins Seminar. Um, so the God Seminar will be taking place alongside of those two other seminars. And so the, the the Westar Fellows who are participating in these discussions will be in conversation with the historians and with the biblical scholars uh, throughout the duration of the of the work. So yeah, a kind of examination of how the concept of God has changed throughout history uh, but also that second part of the title, "God in the Human Future," is really important. Um, and that, and I, the way I understand this is, what what sort of concept and what sort of stories and images of God make sense for the church and and, and believing communities, um, not just sort of in the past, but sort of moving forward, such that that the message, the good news of the gospel, and the kind of public um, sort of visibility of uh, of the church can be made uh, made new somehow.
0: And of course, these West Star seminars—they meet twice a year in the spring and the fall—and they've had two seminars so far, I believe, the fall 2014 and spring 2015 on the topic of God and the human future. and, yeah, and then there would uh, be another one, I think, this fall.
1: Right. Uh, so every year in the fall, we uh, we meet. In conjunction with the American annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion, um, and we have a kind of satellite meeting alongside that, because most religion and theologian, religion scholars and theologians are at that meeting already. And then once a year in the spring, usually in Santa Rosa, California, is when Westar has its own self-standing meeting in which the public is invited to attend as well.
0: And, of course, you're going to be here in Portland, or in Beaverton, a suburb of Portland, on November 6th and 7th as part of a Jesus Seminar on the Road. And this is an educational thing in which fellows, two by two, as the Lord has sent them, uh, to go out and uh, talk about uh, this kind of thing to the public.
1: Right. And so, yeah, this is very much consistent with what I said about the mission Mm -hmm. of Westar, the idea of, of promoting religious literacy, of letting the public know about what new and interesting scholarship on religion is, is, is going on and sort of communicating that away in such a way that it, it's made relevant. Um, and so, yeah, this is very different than the, the, the large conferences in which the deliberations take place. This is more just a kind of informational session. This is, this is what we as scholars are excited about and want the public to know.
0: Uh, one thing um, I want to talk about is, that, of course, the Jesus Seminar votes with the beads, you know, a red meaning yes, pink meaning kind of. Gray, right. not sure. Black, no, or basically, and and that's been fun. And the one vote that I've understood that maybe have been more uh, on the God question was at the spring meeting. Uh, the statement was the subject matter of theology is God conceived as a supreme being or highest entity. That was the statement put out there, and right. uh, and the fellows uh, on the whole voted uh, black or no. Uh, Correct. So if God isn't the subject of theology, then then what is?
1: Well, you forgot the caveat in that, right? Oh, okay. God is not the subject of uh, theology, but God is a supernatural entity. Okay, all right. Um, Sort of conceived as a supernatural entity. So this was really, our entire deliberations over the spring was was centered on the work of the contemporary theologian and philosopher of religion, John Caputo, but also uh, really in reference to the historical significance of Paul Tillich who um, did a lot of really important work, 20th century Protestant theologian uh, from Germany originally. And he talked about uh, the God beyond God. Um, and, and to me, this is really important just for kind of understanding the work of contemporary theology. And for him, so for him, the God beyond God, the importance of that is that Christianity, and especially Protestantism, um, has always been alert to the temptation, human temptation for idolatry. Uh, mm-hmm. We make an, we easily are prone to making idols out of things, um, giving absolute significance to things that are only relatively important. Um, and and for Tillich, he doesn't mean this in sort of the literal sense of us of shaping sort of statues and bowing down before them, but but more in terms of our concepts, the way in which our concept for God and the the kind of attributes that we give to God are thought to be sacrosanct um, and are thought to be of absolute importance. And so by talking about the God beyond God he's saying that all of these attributes and characterizations uh, that we give to God, uh, these are just human approximations. And what we need to understand is that whatever or whoever God is, God is beyond that. Um, And so for us at Westar in in this first meeting, it was a way to sort of think about uh, the God beyond God. Uh, But also not get stuck in the way in which um, past generations have conceived of God in terms of supernaturalism. Um, So is there a way of talking about sort of God? that is consistent with modern science, that, that doesn't sort of alienate people who have a hard time of imagining sort of God as this kind of grandfatherly figure in the sky.
0: Yeah, there's a huge divide uh, between scholars of religion and practitioners of religion, it seems to me. Uh, most people think of God, uh, just kind of, as I s- said flippantly, as a supernatural being who created the world, intervenes, and so forth. Uh, whether they believe in this being or not, that's what uh, God is, it seems, for the vast majority, maybe 90% of the populace. But that is isn't what religious scholars think about when they think about God. Is yeah, it?
1: that's correct. I mean, I, I think, if it, not to get too... Sort of deep in the woods on this, but if you think about the kind of early definition of what theology is by Saint Anselm in the Middle Ages, he says, Theology is faith seeking understanding. And he's also the same person who talked about sort of God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. If your listeners took a philosophy of religion class, they'll remember that as one of the famous proofs for God's existence. So this notion that God is greater than that which can be conceived is. Is a way of talking about the same thing I was talking about with Tillich, a God beyond God. So yes, it's practitioners and sort of people within believing communities have a certain traditional, perhaps conception of God that that empowers them, that sort of brings the community together. Uh, But whatever it is we mean by God, God can't be limited by those, though that the kind of Um, the partiality of our human comprehension, uh, because God, to be God, must be ultimately incomprehensible uh, by definition.
0: Huh? Yeah, you know, when I talk about God as something other than a supernatural being, then people will automatically say, well, that's atheism. Right,
1: right. And that's not what... um, I mean by that um, I I should sort of acknowledge that there's there's a lot of kind of internal debate amongst contemporary theologians and philosophers of religion about that whether to deny um, the supernatural God as traditionally conceived whether that necessarily leads to atheism or not the way Paul Tillich talked about it was not in terms of atheism but instead in terms of non theism and so Theism, which conceives of God in terms of a personal, supernatural God who abides in heaven, automatically sort of elicits the response of or the reaction of atheism for those for whom they cannot sort of believe in that concept of God. Mm-hmm. The advantage of a non-theistic perspective is that it's a way of, of, of acknowledging that there are different conceptions of God that don't require that supernatural leap of faith.
0: So some might say, um, I've had Daniel Dennett on the program, you know, that God is pretty much, we ought to move beyond God altogether. Uh, But nonetheless, even if we just regard it as a symbol, it certainly is very present in in people's lives. And I'm wondering, what might a modern conception of God do for us uh, as a society?
1: Yeah. Um, it's a great question. it's the million dollar question, I think, for yeah. me and, and for my work. Because for a long time, I mean, if you think back to the the nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies, there was a movement called sort
0: death of God theology. Yeah, Thomas Altizer. It,
1: you're right. And in some way the, the the thought was that you could dispense with the idea of God and sort of get beyond um, theology as traditionally conceived in those terms. Um, it was more complex than that, but that that was the way in which it was sort of received within the public. So the death of God means sort of the end of religion as we know it. Um, and we can sort of get beyond these things that that cause certain people to feel alienated from the church or people who might be, positively attracted to the message of Jesus are, are repelled because of these, um, kind of intellectual leaps that they're unable to make. But I, I don't see things that way. I, I see that even after the so-called death of God, we still desire God. Hmm. We still in some ways sort of need some conception of God because it's what sort of draws us beyond ourselves. So for me, God becomes the name for desire um, and a kind of desire for ultimacy by which we give name to that which is sort of bigger than ourselves, beyond ourselves, um, that which sort of ties us together in a, in a community of, of kind of longing by, the, that, by which we're characterized by our better angels as opposed to our kind of baser selves. So I think, I think the word God still does a lot of work. I think it still provides that kind, of, um, that kind of image of thought or that kind of concept, even if we don't know exactly what it means, uh, that sort of brings people together and helps kind of focus our energies on sort of that which is uh, sort of bigger or better or beyond ourselves.
0: If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Jeffrey Robbins. He's the chair of the Religion and Philosophy Department at Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. He's going to be in Portland in Beaverton at uh, Southminster Presbyterian Church November 6th and 7th for a a Jesus Seminar on the Road. The seminar is uh, God, uh, God Christianity, and the Human Future. Uh, In the uh, brochure uh, advertising the seminar here in Beaverton, it says throughout Christianity, God questions have most often been about how the world works. What do we mean by God today? Has God any value for humanity? And what about Christianity? Um, talking about Christianity as an attitude. What? What? Talk about that a little bit more. How is Christianity an attitude?
1: Yeah. Well, there's if if you think back to the origins, historical origins of Christianity, long before. There were established doctrines. Uh, there was a way of being in the world uh, that was identified as the way of Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. people, people were followers of Jesus before there was such a thing as Christianity. Um, and Christianity sort of emerged as a kind of internal reform movement within Judaism. Jesus himself was Jewish. The early followers of Jesus were all Jewish. And so beyond the kind of doctrines which eventually came to be formulated that defined Christianity as we know it, or not not beyond, but before that, was a kind of way of being in the world, a way of relating to one another, a way of kind of recognizing the sort of essential dignity of one another, taking care of the poor and the vulnerable. And so in, in this respect, sort of the God and the human future portion of the seminar is a way of sort of getting back at those defining characteristics that animated the Christian movement in its very origins.
0: So it's kind of moving away from Christianity as divine by a set of beliefs to almost a, a beliefless Christianity, one that's about uh, a practice, a way of being in the world.
1: Yeah, or if not beliefless, maybe sort of— uh, uh, kind of plural beliefs, a kind of acknowledgement okay. that there, there may be sort of a, a diversity of how people believe and how they interpret and sort of understand the transformative significance of the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Um, Elaine Pagels, the, a historical biblical scholar who's done a lot of work on Gnosticism and, and has been involved in Westar in the past, she has a really important book out called uh, Beyond Belief. Mm-hmm. And and for her, it's it's she tries to chronicle this moment by which the the church fathers made that kind of fateful decision to to define sort of exclusively the parameters of what counts as authentic Christianity, and from that point forward, sort of Christianity begins to sort of police itself and um, make determinations about who belongs inside and who's an outsider, and. It, Pagels would argue that this, this leads to a, a kind of detriment uh, of the faith, that Christianity becomes something that it wasn't as a result of that, and it loses some of its openness and its vitality that characterized it in its origins.
0: You know, I want to talk to you also about the word religion, because I think it relates to this. Um, uh, even my program here, Portland here is the most secular city, um, perhaps in the okay. United States, uh, the largest number of nuns. And religion is just a dirty word. I mean, my program, Religion for Life, was criticized. People said, eh, religion is for death. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm kind of wondering, you're a professor of religion. Uh, religion poisons everything, says Christopher Higgins. Freedom from religion. I um, wh- is there a positive role for religion? Talk, talk about religion in general. What is it, maybe?
1: Yeah, that's a huge question, as you, I'm sure you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, um, I guess I will resort to a, a book I co-authored with uh, a colleague, Clayton Crockett, called uh, uh, Religion, Politics, and the Earth, The New Materialism. Mm-hmm. And in that book, the opening chapter is on religion, And it talks in terms of the old kind of materialist critique of religion, which is exactly as you just identified, the idea that religion is poison, the Marxist critique that religion is an opiate for the masses, or the critique from psychoanalysis and Sigmund Freud that religion is nothing but an illusion, Um, a kind of cry of desperation for those who can't sort of face the world on their own. And, and I think that's all important. I I, I teach these figures and I appreciate uh, their work tremendously. But I think that that notion that religion is a form of false consciousness fails to really understand sort of religion on its own terms. And sort of what religion does is that it, it does sort of mobilize and empower people in um, and it's not that it's true or false. Even Freud recognized that. It, it doesn't have to be about whether it's true or false. The important thing is that it gives people a kind of narrative frame of reference by which to live their life with meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. And in spite of all the, all the kind of anticipation and predictions for religion's demise, the kind of age-old secularization thesis it's called, the idea that the more modern and the more rational... And the more scientific we become, the less religious we would become. The fact of the matter is, religion is still here with us. And by all accounts, it's here to stay. It changes. It morphs. It transforms itself from generation to generation. But the fact of the matter is, by all accounts, it seems to be a kind of transcultural phenomena that that characterized people's deepest desires uh, for a sense of meaning and purpose. And so that's what I want. to to kind of focus our efforts on. Not, Not this kind of use of scholarship to try to discredit religion or try to sort of poke holes or to kind of show the logical inconsistencies of one faith or another. I think that's really easy to do. I think the much more difficult thing to do is to understand on a kind of existential and spiritual level what it is about religion that stakes a claim on people's lives and why millions of people Generation after generation and century after century have, have found sort of meaning and purpose in religion. And I think if you don't understand that, um, if you can't sort of describe and sort of feel that allure, then, then whatever you say about religion doesn't really have a whole lot of merit.
0: Jeffrey Robbins, my guest on Religion for Life, uh, chair of religion and philosophy at Lebanon Valley College, author of the upcoming book, uh, Radical Theology, A Theological Method for Change. And maybe that's a segue to your book. Uh, there's a sense in which I'm hearing you talking that um, yeah, religion is there, um, but m- maybe we could mend it not end it. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and and so and and since so there is an ethical imperative. It seems to be in in your theology uh, or uh, in the aspect of, of religion, making the world a, a better place. Our human future is that a little bit about your book. Uh, tell me about that. Radical theology, yeah. a theological method for change.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, well, radical theology grows out of that death of God tradition, which I spoke about before. Um, it's a it's a kind of identifiable school of thought um, in which people have have tried to uh, consider what sort of makes theology or God talk in general relevant for the contemporary world in spite of all those people you were referencing before who Mm -hmm. say this is nonsense or this is no longer relevant or no longer credible. So radical theology wants to suggest that there is a way of sort of doing theology otherwise. Um, a way of sort of imagining sort of God differently. Um, and so I, I, I'm trying to to hearken back to that tradition and sort of reemploy it in such a way that it, it directly sort of addresses issues that we face today, specifically with regard to the kind of interaction between religion and politics, um, the kind of question of kind of race relations in America, um, sort of questions about sort of gender and... And sort of uh, the role religion plays, in sort of maybe supporting or subverting uh, patriarchy in all its forms. So I'm, I'm so I'm trying to broaden the tradition of radical theology such that it speaks to to these kind of pressing contemporary concerns.
0: And the radical part of radical theology is what going back to the root of theology, or is it uh, a critique of theology as yeah? It's been done?
1: I think it's a it's a critique. It's a critique of traditionalism, okay. I think. Um, and it's a, a recognition that sort of there are different ways of doing theology. So there's one way of doing a kind of church or ecclesiastical theology that that is, is meant to kind of clarify what it is a particular community might believe about itself or about who God is. Mm-hmm. There's another way of doing theology that might be called sort of fundamental theology that really is sort of more philosophical in its orientation, that really subjects everything to critical scrutiny. Um, and so radical theology is more of the latter, this sort of notion that that everything is um, questionable. Everything sort of must be questioned, and you question all the way down. Um, mm. And sort of you don't know the outcome or the end point of your questioning in advance. And that's one of the kind of famous criticisms of the way in which theologians think by a philosopher, 20th century philosopher, Martin Heidegger, who says, theology doesn't think because it knows the answer before it ever begins the task of thinking. Right. And I think radical theology would say, well, there's a different kind of theology. This is a kind of theology that doesn't know the answer before it begins the task of thinking, which is precisely the point.
0: Now, is there a relationship, uh, just one final question, just got about a minute left, also to, to liberation theology, uh, Theological advocacy for the poor and for justice.
1: Yes, Um, and that's in in my book. That's where I'm critical of radical theology in the past, um, because it, in spite of a lot of commonality commonalities between liberation theology and radical theology, um, the radical theology never really engaged the liberationist theologians in conversation, and never really took up that challenge of trying to. Um, kind of challenge institutions of power and authority and, and really articulating that preferential option for the poor. And so as I'm trying to sort of expand and re-employ radical theology, I'm, I'm, I'm engaging with liberation theology in a very deliberate
0: way. Jeffrey Robbins has been my guest on Religion for Life. He's the chair of the Religion and Philosophy Department at Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania, Uh, the author of the upcoming book, Radical Theology, a Theological Method for Change. And he, along with Thomas Sheehan, professor of religion at Stanford, is going to be at Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon, uh, for a... God Seminar, God and Christianity in the Human Future. It's going to be exciting November 6th and 7th. Uh, thank you for coming there. I look forward to meeting you in person, and uh, thanks, uh, Jeffrey, for being on the show today.
1: Thank you for this opportunity. I look forward to, to
0: being in your area. You've been listening to Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schuck from KBOO Portland. Be well.